1: This is Cresta in the afternoon.
0: Hey, good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Glad to be back as we kick off another week talking about the things that matter most. You know, we're in the middle of Lenten right now, and Lent is an opportunity for many of us to get reacquainted with some traditional devotions um, that have been practiced oftentimes for centuries, but have maybe been overlooked. Uh, Stations of the Cross, for instance. Uh, My guest coming up, Gary Jansen, uh, has given us a wonderful look at an an Ignatian journey through the Stations of the Cross. Again, it's focused on the suffering of others and the suffering that Christ identifies with. That's coming up. We're also going to take time with Dr. Matthew Bunsen today to look over what is really a painful moment in Christ German church history, the participants in the German Synodal Ways Final Assembly overwhelmingly endorsed a document on Friday urging German bishops to permit same sex blessings officially in their diocese. And they followed up on this on Saturday with measures supporting transgender ideology and women's ordination to the ministerial priesthood. We're going to get the latest from Matthew on this uh, now that the votes have been taken. People suspected it was going to go this way. We, we thought about it, and we were just waiting for it to become official. Now it's official. And there's also, in their uh, in their intentions, we now know they're going to try to lobby uh, for these positions in the church globally. So that's, uh, we got ourselves a real interesting moment in Catholic church history coming up. And we'll find out uh, today, of course, the 10th anniversary of Pope Francis's pontificate. I'm fairly certain this is, this is something he didn't bargain for, since he believed that transgender ideology is uh, what he called ideological colonization. It comes from the, the powerful countries of the West and is imposed upon the weak, suffering countries, the third world countries. So that's coming up, and then we're going to take time with Steve Wood, uh, an interview I did with Steve a while back, on justification by faith and the role of grace in producing justification. But first, let's get to the headlines. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. I thought we'd take a look and a form of prayer which is too often neglected, and that is the Stations of the Cross. My guest, Gary Jansen, is Senior Editor of Religion and Spirituality at the Crown Publishing Group at Penguin Random House. He is the author of The Rosary, A Journey to the Beloved, and the best-selling memoir, Holy Ghosts. He has appeared on A&E, the Sundance Channel, Travel Channel, Coast to Coast AM, CNN.com, NPR. His writing has been featured in the Huffington Post. Religion Dispatches in USA Today. Uh, Gary also has uh, composed a wonderful volume, Dealing with Catholic Devotional Life. And Gary, good to have you with me today.
2: Hey, thank you so much for having me on today.
0: Well, there are many approaches to the Stations of the Cross. It's a traditional devotion. Why did you decide to give us another?
2: You know, it's, it was a question I asked myself because I was asked by an editor six or seven years ago to write a book on the Stations of the Cross, and I really felt like, you know what? I don't have anything to say about <laughs> this devotion. So many people have written about it. Yeah. I, I I am not smart enough or knowledgeable <laughs> enough to answer the question: well, Why does God allow suffering? Right. And but after but a couple years ago, I started seeing. I started going through the scriptural Stations of the Cross. And, and I started to see that each, each, each station, Jesus reacted to suffering in a very specific way. And so I became very intrigued, not so much by why does God allow suffering, but how does Jesus react to suffering? Respond to suffering, yeah. How does he respond yeah. to suffering, right? And, and, and can we, I mean, we have the Beatitudes, we have all the parables, we have mm-hmm. all of Jesus' teachings, but can we unlock certain character-building traits in the Stations of the Cross by looking at each station individually and seeing how Jesus responds.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, I think, you know, a people when they talk about suffering about an answer to the problem of suffering. At least in my experience, uh, answer isn't the right word to use. Right. Uh, there's a sense of identification maybe with the sufferings of Jesus or trying to imitate him because at the intellectual level i don't think any answer can be emotionally satisfying uh you've got to find some other way of uh embracing suffering coping with suffering working through suffering and and it sounds like that's what uh, you're focused on here in station to station is responding to suffering
2: right absolutely i mean if you look at the if if we look at the the first scriptural station right which is jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, so what is Jesus is going through a very, very difficult moment in his life, and what does he do? Well, the first thing he does is he prays right and and shouldn't that be one of our responses when we're yeah. going through uh, when we're going through suffering well here's you know here's jesus and and he's praying in one of his one of the most difficult yeah. periods of his life yeah. and and maybe this is a good idea for us that when we're suffering it can be it, we can be. We can turn on ourselves and become very, very conscious of ourselves. But I think in times of suffering, maybe the thing that we're supposed to do and what maybe Jesus is teaching us to do is to turn away from ourselves and turn toward God.
0: Mm. You mentioned the scriptural stations. We should probably clarify, what's the difference between the scriptural stations of the cross and the traditional?
2: Sure. Well, the traditional stations of the cross are the, are the stations that you would see in your church, or your local church. Mm-hmm. So those are the 14 plaques or pieces of artwork that you might see on the wall, and that people go around and they pray during Lent or around Easter time. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and the scriptural stations, well, they're all... They, uh, oh, And so one of the differences is that the traditional stations, not all of those scenes are depicted in the Bible, mm-hmm. right? They're passed on from right. tradition. Right. So the scriptural stations of the cross uh, is all Bible-based, okay. right? Cool. It was something that John Paul II um, kind of gave to us, mm-hmm. based on from the Bible, the, uh, I think in 2002, for us to really look at Jesus' passion and the stations of the cross through the scriptures.
0: Mm-hmm. Good. So, I mean, this is, so this is anchored in, in the biblical text itself, like the, the, the Veronica passage that we think of is not from scripture. It's it's right. from the tradition. All right, so so the first, you start out at Gethsemane with Christ's initial response to the mission of suffering that he's about to to imminently undertake, and his response is prayer. To give me uh, move move me through this. Uh, w- where is he going next, and what is he? How does he build on the prayer that he's been uh, performing at Gethsemane?
2: Well sure. You know, he's you know, he obviously he asks, you know, for this cup to be taken from him if it's God's will. And uh and we move into that second station, which is where Jesus is betrayed by Judas. Right. And so very dramatic scene in the story. And and essentially everyone's kind of freaking out around him, mm-hmm. right? right? But what does Jesus do? Well he just he stays calm. Right. I mean here's here's his friend who is just betrayed him, here are the authorities that are going to take him into custody. And, you know, you could watch cops on TV, and everyone freaks out when they get arrested. But no, Jesus stays (laughs) calm. You know? And he stays calm. So he prays, and he stays calm. And then when he's before the Sanhedrin, and they're challenging him, well, some people may actually cower. Some people may uh, feel such fear that they need to step yeah. aside or, or or not or or just not be witness to to their own belief in in God. And what does He do? He remains steadfast. He he's, he is he is this rock. And so you start to start to see these these reactions in the stations of the cross and the scriptural stations that all of a sudden become wow. You know, what I mean. How do we build Christian character? Well, one way of building Christian character is really to kind of look at these stations and see, you know, how does God respond, or how does Jesus respond um, to to pressure? You know, and how do we respond to pressure in our lives? I mean, do, when we suffer or we feel like the pinch or when people are putting a squeeze on us, do we do we pray, do we yeah. stay calm, yeah. or do we react differently?
0: I think that you've you got him staying calm uh, through this. He's betrayed by Judas. He's uh, condemned by the Sanhedrin. He's arrested, of course, in the process, and he's staying calm. And that is directly related to his preparation, which occurred at Gethsemane, and his 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 confidence that this is his mission, and is willing to embrace it. He, he's not trying to skirt it. He's
2: right. no,
0: he's no longer in any way ambivalent. Um, he's he's turned his uh, face towards Calvary at this point, and I think. Having prayed, having embraced the suffering, he can he can afford to stand firm when everything is going crazy around him. What do you make of the denial? Uh, You got the betrayal by Judas. You have the denial by Peter. Mm -hmm.
2: Why are those? Why are both
0: of those things? uh, They almost play off one another.
2: Uh, They absolutely do. Yeah. So I think you know the way that was one that really kind of resonated a lot with me. Which is and and what came out of My meditation on that particular station where peter um, where peter denies jesus is that jesus does not turn away from him you know he does he accepts peter's weakness he knows going into this whole thing that peter is going to stumble and he's going to fall peter doesn't think so but jesus knows his weakness and you know what he still allows him to be the rock of the church and so Jesus is a very Ignatian thing, or a very Jesuit thing, right? That Jesus meets, or um, you know, God meets us where we are, mm-hmm. right? He and, and and Jesus meets Peter where he is there, and and knowing all of these things about him, he still he still remained loyal, even when even when Peter wasn't loyal to him.
0: Uh, I, again, this I think this again builds uh, beautifully in the in the Garden of Gethsemane. His friends are there, but they're asleep they can't his most intimate friends uh, peter james and john uh and here again he's <laughs> he's a friend is undermining his is seeking to undermine his mission peter's denying him and yet jesus hasn't lost his uh his his identity he's not mm-hmm. uh a lot of times we draw our our uh We draw our sense of self or sense of mission from the people most important to us. But it's clear here that Jesus is able to maintain his mission apart from the opinions of those of his closest friends on earth. Uh, So I think, again, these are wonderful uh, uh, places for reflection and meditation. I've always thought it was interesting that the, the stations have, again, uh, these it's, there's a legal battle going on, and so it's it's uh, you you got the pilot, you've got the Sanhedrin, you've got a, a legal judgment being made. What's the presence of the law in
2: all of this? The um, can you explain that just a little bit more? Take that yeah. step further.
0: Uh, I mean, when we think about when you and I think of uh, growing spiritually. Mm-hmm. And entering more deeply in our relationship with God, we normally don't think about it in terms of having to face legal uh harassment or persecution mm-hmm. uh and yet that is a central part of uh, the story of Jesus is that he has to he has to he ends up dying at the hands of corrupt uh religious institutions and also uh corrupt political institutions he, he there's there's tremendous external Opposition to him, and uh, and again, it's legal authorities. I don't. I'm not really worried uh, at this moment. Maybe in ten years, I will worry mm-hmm. about the law uh, coming down hard on me for my faith or beliefs. But that is central to Jesus and the early apostles' story.
2: Yeah, I see what you're saying. The uh, again, Jesus. You know, he is this this person who knows that the kingdom is not of this earth, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and it's something that we need to reflect on and to keep in the forefront of our minds, you know, as we go through our lives. I mean, there's I tell a, a story in a book about a, psych, a psychologist who, who um, holds an orange in his hand, and he asks his audience, he's like, if I squeeze his orange, what comes out of it? And uh, the audience says, well, orange juice, right? He says, yes, exactly, orange juice, because that's kind of the essence of the orange, right? Mm-hmm. You squeeze it, yes. and you get orange juice, you don't get apple juice. Yeah. And then he says, well, what happens when the world puts the squeeze on you? Yeah, very good. Right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. how do you respond, right? Is it with vitriol? Is it with vengeance? Is it with anger or fear? Right? And, and then I asked the question, the psychologist didn't ask this, but I asked the question, well, how did Jesus respond to mm-hmm. this suffering? When he was put under great pressure, when the world put the squeeze on him, and and what did he do? He kept the kingdom in the forefront of his mind. The kingdom was he, and the kingdom were one. Yeah. The uh, but but it was his focus on the kingdom, and how do we become better Christians? And it is by by putting the kingdom in front.
0: Excellent, Gary. Thank you so much. Wonderful talking with you and. Uh, oh. Friends of mine have been raving about Station to Station, so (laughs) thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Al.
2: Take care. Gary
0: Gary Jansen is the author of Station to Station, An Ignatian Journey Through the Scriptural Stations of the Cross. It's really a very insightful, very insightful book. Good afternoon. I'm Al Kressler, and joining me right now is Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief for EWTN News, and a Senior Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He's the author or co-author of more than 50 books, including the first English-language biography of Pope Francis and the Encyclopedia of Catholic History. He's also written the Encyclopedia of American Catholic History. And we may see some historic decisions being made uh, in Germany. Uh, With me right now is Dr. Bunsen. Matthew, good to have you here.
1: Oh, very good to be with you.
0: Well, uh, we have the 10th anniversary of Pope Francis's pontificate. Uh, we've got the Catholic Prayer Breakfast, which uh, gets kicked off tonight with some uh, talks and then tomorrow. And uh, we have the... Uh, Media conference uh, over the yes, weekend. Yes, so you busy been, few days. I was going to say, <laughs> you, you,
1: I'm surprised we were able to get a hold of you. So. No, this is this is one show I, I never miss, as you know. <laughs> well, thank you. And of course, we're preparing for St. Patrick's Day too. So yes, we are.
0: It's going to be a very very busy week. Let's start off with the the general uh, theme of Pope Francis's pontificate. I saw a piece in the register in which he said um, he wouldn't evaluate his pontificate so far, but uh, the Lord will judge his life one day based on whether he practiced the corporal works of mercy mm-hmm. as taught by Jesus. And That's, a, I think, a direct reference to Matthew 25, uh, where the last judgment scene and uh, Jesus uh, looks at the sheep and says, You uh, fed me, uh, you know, you visited me in prison. And, of course, to the goats, they did not. So I'm fairly certain <laughs> yes. that's what's in the backdrop of his mind there. Yeah. But it is quite amazing that he actually he does say that, that his, it was explicit. The Lord will judge him whether he, based on whether he practiced the corporal works of mercy or not.
1: Well, that, that's correct. And, and I think it, it is very consistent with the theme that uh, we have seen as a kind of overarching uh, a macro theme yeah. uh, for this pontificate, and that is mercy. He proclaimed it. He had a year of mercy. He proclaimed it really from the very night of his election, uh, when everyone was astonished to see an Argentinian a Jesuit coming out yeah. of the, the loggia. His own Episcopal motto that is now also the, the motto of his pontificate, uh, miserando atque elegendo, and it, that is with mercy chosen and yeah. it is a reference to a commentary on the Gospel of St. Matthew on the call of Matthew uh, by the Venerable Bede, doctor of the church. Yeah. And mercy, in some fashion or another, cuts to the heart of almost everything that he has done in, in so many of his decisions. Uh, we have seen that um, in his outreach to the peripheries, uh, his proclamation of mercy, of accompaniment, And I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that I think some of that is also a key component in what has also become one of the key themes of this pontificate, which is synodality, which uh, had not been mentioned at all until just about three years ago. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Again, for those who haven't followed this conversation, what is synodality? It's (laughs) a word we're not accustomed to using in English.
1: Well, that is uh, now the question uh, for uh, the Church. It's a question also that is often put to the very organizers of the Synod on Synodality, which is going to start uh, in, on a more formal sense. Uh, we've had this continental phase. We've had this global preparation for it in the Synod on Synodality in October of this year and then a concluding one uh, next year in October in 2024. It is often said that the Synod, the synodal way, and we have to differentiate very starkly uh, what is happening in Germany uh, with what Pope Francis talks about in Synodality, uh, is this idea of journeying together, Uh, and it is the idea of listening, of accompanying. Uh, He stresses very much the the place of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It is that the Synodal Church, as he puts it, is a listening church. Uh, Now, that raises its own host of questions. Yeah. Uh, as to what we're listening to, who we're listening to, yeah. and what the ultimate destination of this journey together might be. And uh, I think, in, in fairness, it's been something of a challenge uh, on the part of Vatican officials. I think, for example, of Cardinal Mario Grec, who's the General Secretary for the Synod, uh, and a number of his uh, closest aides in explaining exactly what we're trying to accomplish here. What is clear uh, is that as Pope Francis himself has said this is not supposed to be a parliament this is not supposed to put up the teachings of the church for a vote right. which is certainly what we've had in Germany Right. so again we have to keep that stark difference between the monstrosity of the cataclysm that is befalling the church in Germany and now potentially elsewhere with what Pope Francis wants and what he has asked for you know he's, he also talks about and this is
0: clearly related he um quotes uh andre uh, de Lubac. he says, I dream of a church without clericalism mm-hmm. uh, what does he mean by clericalism?
1: Well, I think uh, we have seen uh one of his goals to be that the he, the phrase that he used very often and very early in his pontificate is that he wants his priests to have the smell of the sheep. Yeah. And he talks about the fact that a priest or bishop uh, who becomes ill through clericalism, as as he puts it, does a lot of damage to the church. In other words, that they are aloof, they are superior, they are not with their flock. Mm -hmm. And his argument is that uh, it's beyond just... The potential of uh, financial corruption. Uh, we have seen as well clericalism as one of the symptoms or causes of the clergy sexual abuse crisis. Uh, we heard very similar things even in the time of Pope Benedict XVI and John Paul II, where there is this a sense of, of enclosed superiority, uh, this aloofness. Um, but he's also talking about that it, there's financial corruption inside and outside of the Vatican, is a yeah. point he makes. But he's also talking about a corruption of heart, and that that very corruption uh, is a scandal. Yeah. Yeah. He even mentions
0: uh, that uh, worse are cl- worse than um, priests and bishops who are uh, guilty of clericalism, he says, even worse are the
1: clericalized <laughs> lay people. <laughs> <laughs> I, they they are, are a nuisance. A nuisance, <laughs> yes, exactly. Which, in, in some ways, too, is another... Yep. A frankly blunt uh, indictment of what's happening in Germany where we are seeing this very clear effort to clericalize uh, the lay people yep. uh, in the life of the church
0: let's talk about it because they've now taken steps that are very concrete that we can refer to there in, in Germany they have um, participants in the, the German synodal way the final assembly has now overwhelmingly endorsed a document that urges german bishops to permit same-sex bless- blessings officially
1: in their dioceses yes, yes uh, starting in 2026
0: yeah and then uh, apparently they f- were planning on following up on saturday i don't know if they went through this but uh they were going to support transgender ideology and women's
1: ordination as well did they actually vote on that uh they did so uh they want a text Uh, dealing with gender diversity as they put it. Uh, It Mm. had about 96% support uh, and now this is going to be key in any discussion going forward on everything that's happening there. 38 bishops uh, voted for the document on so-called gender diversity Uh, 7 voted against it and then another 13 abstained Mm. so if you look at it, it's about 38 to 20 Um, now These are the bishops of Germany who have made this decision to support a document uh, that the the church teaching is very clear on, the Vatican has weighed in on, Pope Francis himself continues to talk about the fact uh, that gender ideology is toxic to the church. He calls it a form of ideological colonization. So we have a majority of bishops, a solid majority of bishops in Germany voting for this and a lot of other things. So it raises the question of where we go from here, uh, because while it is absolutely true that this synodal way does not have canonical status, it cannot impose itself on the diocese of Germany, if a bishop so chooses to embrace it, uh, they have... they are vowing to plow ahead yeah. uh, and accept this. One of the things, too, that was raised, and this goes back to this idea of clericalizing lay people and declericalizing the clerics, uh, is this governing council, uh, the, a permanent synodal council. Uh, that one very clearly was denounced uh, by the Holy See. Mm-hmm. They decided uh, to hold back from actually imposing it, from approving it, but what they decided to do instead, and this is simply a delaying action, they're going to delay a vote on the proposal, uh, and they're going to look over the next three years for ways, quote, to convince uh, the Vatican uh, that this will be uh, not a problem. Uh, but and this is very important too. They're looking to find approval elsewhere across the church. We're seeing uh, comments from uh, like Bishop Bonnie I think, in in Belgium and others who are going to be racing to to try to impose the idea of same sex blessings in their diocese. So we're going to have small but very vocal group of bishops in Europe and elsewhere, I suspect, who will try to co opt and and embrace this Synodal model that the Germans are proposing. So we are far, far from any conclusion of this, even though the, the work of the Germans is done uh, this is in many ways And I think we're going to see more documents Coming from them uh, The modern equivalent of Nailing the 95 theses yeah. On the door of the church And now it falls to the Holy See uh, To deal with this
0: Yeah, It's, it's amazing This is uh, truly something uh, We've not seen uh, You and I were talking off the air the other day uh, The closest Well let, let me throw it to you it is, is the publication of the Dutch Catechism Way back in, what was it, 1968 or so? Yes. Is, is that the closest thing we have to an, an official statement from a, uh, a bishop's council, a national council?
1: Yes, I, th- I think that would be a, a good model. Uh, the one thing that I, I would say at least that the Dutch Catechism had going for it uh, is that it was an honest response, Yeah. wrong-headed heretical but a wrong-headed response to the second vatican council right this was, is a repudiation of what the council really called for
0: uh, uh, very good very good distinction uh this is a five-page document that was published it's called blessing ceremonies for couples who love each other I, i'm curious heterosexual couples who love each other but don't <laughs> intend to enter into sacramental marriage do they get blessed as well
1: uh no it's not that i'm aware of but i mean, i think this just opens the door for pretty much everything yeah uh and it's an endorsement of cohabitation uh it's going to cause wholesale confusion uh among already poorly catechized catholics as to what the difference would be between a same-sex blessing and a marriage because we're now basically one step up between the two uh and then when we add into the The MEX, another uh, document that was passed, which is Women in Sacramental Ministry. Uh, This is a recipe for chaos and confusion. Can can you
0: stay for another segment? Uh, Yes, I can. Okay, we'll come back and pick it up uh, from there. I'm Al Crester with me, Dr. Matthew Bunce, and our topic principally right now uh, the German Synodal Way. It's voted to back same sex blessings. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta with me, Dr. Matthew Bunce, and our topic. Well, first of all, we were talking about the 10th anniversary of the launch of Pope Francis' pontificate. And then we went and began talking about the German Synodal Way, which voted overwhelmingly in favor of a document now calling on bishops to officially allow blessing ceremonies, uh, that is, blessing of same sex couples. voting to bless those uh, couples, and uh, this is to be uh, implemented. There's also an attempt to lobby uh, the church around the world. And I I
1: missed what you said at the close of last segment there, Matthew. Yeah, I was saying that uh, we have to look at um, the the votes, for example, on gender ideology, uh, also in context with the other things that they were doing at this synodal way. Uh, One of the most important aspects of it, I think, was the decision to pass this text on women in sacramental ministry, what they call Perspectives for the Universal Church Dialogue. Only 10 of the 58 bishops actually voted against the measure, which calls outright uh, for German bishops to promote the idea of the sacramental ordination of women Uh, the continental and universal level of the church. So in other words, what they're calling for isn't even a vague idea of women deacons. What this is, is the establishment of a sacramental diaconate of women uh, with uh, opening the sacramental diaconate uh, to them. So what this does is it, it... Leaps beyond even these vague proposals that we have seen over the last few years directly into orders, which then would push the door open uh, for their ordination to the priesthood, which the church cannot do. Yeah. This is something which John Paul II did address
0: in Ordinatio Sacerdotalis back in 1994.
1: Yeah, and, and Paul VI Sixth, Paul VI, six, he was, and And yep. Pope Francis has been very clear. He has used the, the, the blunt phrase, that door is closed. That's right.
0: And the reason I bring that up is because, uh, John Paul II of, is because in that document, he used the language of infallible declaration, it seems to me. Now, I, people may disagree about this, but, uh, and I don't know what the, the final word will be from the Holy See, but... I thought he said that I'm making a definitive judgment. Um, I'm putting an end to the discussion. Uh, he's doing it to confirm the brethren in the faith. You go down the list of things that ex- are expected of an infallible statement, and it looks like that's what we have in Ordinatio Sacerdotalis. But I'll let you. You've talked with many people about it. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think it's very clear. Uh, and. What we see with uh, this, it's it's the fine-tuning, the the very uh, subtle use of language on the part of this uh, approved motion. So they basically went from a direct call for a sacramental diaconate of women to opening the sacramental diaconate for women. Now, we add in, and and German is a very, very precise language, you put in opening. uh, In other words, it's not quite what... um, the radicals, that the, it's basically similar to the, the Girondists and the Jacobins during the French Revolution. They're all calling for outright revolution. It just depends on how severe and how savage you want to get. Yeah. Yeah. And so this motion that was uh, slightly modified with that term opening essentially is one similar to what they want to do with the Synodal Council where they want to, quote, build consensus. And I think we have to connect this to some of the comments that we've seen also in the last weeks uh, from prelates such as Cardinal Robert McElroy of San Diego, who are making similar calls for radical inclusion for Mm -hmm. these discussions uh, for the ordination of women to the diaconate and other things. So it's they're not willing quite yet to take that final step, but we have seen, certainly with other denominations, most prominently the Anglican Communion, uh, that once that discussion starts, they are going to be relentless until they get what they want. Yeah, it was
0: back in 1974, uh, as I remember, at the uh, the Episcopal Church in the United States uh, ordained their first uh, women priests, and I don't quite know how long it took before they had women bishops as well, but it, it followed.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, once the door is there for orders, uh, it, it's a train that can't stop. Right. right yeah. And I think uh, one of the things, too, that we have seen throughout this, all of these discussions and, and uh, uh, kudos to Jonathan Liedel, uh from the National Catholic Register, who uh, uh, took one for the team for all of us uh, and actually attended uh, the closing session. Uh, and Ooh. I would encourage everyone to go to his Twitter feed because I think he's had some Terrific insights, and his writing on this has been really important. I think to have someone there, covering this on the yeah. ground, yeah. and when you listen to the actual comments, um, I'm, I'm not. I'm going to try to be as charitable as I can here. It's many things, but what we understand to be Catholic, it's not. Yeah. Uh, it is, I think, in fairness to uh, Bishop Garrick Batesing. Uh, who's the president of the German Episcopal Conference? Who's sort of the successor of Cardinal Reinhard Marx as the primary driving force for what's happened here in Germany? He used the phrase that uh, we want to be Catholics, just Catholics of a different kind. Well, yes, this is certainly Catholic of a different kind, yeah. but I'm, I'm not. I think it's more just different. Uh, it, I don't <laughs> think at this point that it's Catholic.
2: No.
0: Well, I mean, this is they want to build consensus, and yet they seem to be ignoring. The consensus of the Church through the uh, centuries, and they seem to be ignoring the consensus of the Holy See uh, whenever they've addressed this question of women's ordination. Uh, it's they've determined the Holy See has determined that this is something that is not within the church's authority to do, so
1: exactly, same sex blessings, ordination of women the Church's teachings, very clear teachings on human sexuality, on the human person, on abortion. All of this is now up for grabs as far as the Germans are concerned. But there's one other point that um, was made abundantly manifest as you watched the proceedings, especially in this last session, that the group that is here, and this is one of the worries, I think, for some with the synodal, uh, the synod on synodality, but again, we have to be very clear about separating the two. That this was a tiny, tiny cross-section of German Catholicism that was also deeply unrepresentative of the German Catholic population. That it is now much more diverse, uh, it is much more faithful uh, than this group that had gathered and proclaimed itself to be the spokespeople for the German church. Demographically, it is unrepresentative. Uh, Ideologically or theologically, it is completely unrepresentative. And that's something that if you go to Germany and you go to masses, you see a much more diverse representation in the actual churches. And the churches that are full are the ones that are most diverse, not, uh, I dare say, the sort of dinosaur-like theologians uh, who have inhabited now this synod on uh, the synodal way in Germany for three years?
0: Well, this is—it sounds to me like this is a, a a way of politicizing the church. It's it's you know most lay people that uh, I know, I would venture to say, at least when I've discussed this with them, are not—they're uh, not really interested in being elected to office so that they can. Some way steer the church. Uh, They don't seek out position. They they seek out ministry. Uh, They're interested in sharing the faith. Uh, They're interested in helping um, people overcome uh, problems with divorce. Um, They're interested in uh, helping people create the domestic church. They're not interested in joining some sort of committee. <laughs> uh, that's going to take on the teaching of the church, and uh, so I think our—I say our people—by that I mean those Catholics that are self-consciously committed to the church as a teaching institution instituted by Christ. They aren't. They don't play the political game very well.
1: Oh, that—that's right. Uh, and we are seeing with this group, uh, the the ZDK, the, the Committee of. of Catholics, the Central Committee of Catholics. Uh, And of course, any time you see the word Central Committee... (laughs) It's a (laughs) terrible use of language, at least Uh, in America. (laughs) uh, It's all a very uh, politburo. It's very Marxist. But we're seeing, too, the the, the problems of ideology working its way in. And Pope Francis has said very clearly uh, that he does not want a church of ideologies. No. He does not want ideological bishops. He doesn't want Catholics in the the church being dragged into ideological fights, and that is at the heart of this synodal way in Germany. It is the embrace of a sociological model, of a a radical leftist political model, uh, and it is the laundry list of progressives and dissenting Catholics for the last 50 years who didn't get their way really at the the Second Vatican Council, who did not, certainly did not get their way under Paul, did not get their way under John Paul II and Pope uh, Benedict, uh, but who see an opportunity in misrepresenting and manipulating the teachings of Pope Francis to try to get their way. Yeah. Uh, and Francis himself has been clear that he does not want this synodal way to proceed. Right.
0: Uh, anything significant about the the measure on transgender ideology uh, that we should
1: take note of, or is it just more of the same? It's it's really more of the same. I think uh, we're likely to see coming out of this, uh, obviously the normalizing of uh, things like lay preaching, um, also the adopting same sex. Blessings, which is part of it, but also look for the Germans to push ahead very aggressively uh, with uh, the use of pronouns, of rendering all texts gender neutral. Uh, so we are likely to see a lot of um, what, what the resolution calls for intersex and transgender faithful improving their lives, uh, for example, changing, actually changing baptismal records to match someone's new identified, self-identified gender. Uh, also, banning gender identity from consideration for ministerial roles. So, in other words, uh, a, a trans individual now would be allowed. Mandatory education uh, for priests and church employees to deal with the topic of gender diversity. Uh, so, it's the, the laundry list, as I was saying, of everything that is tearing apart uh, culture today. Uh, they want to implement uh, without recourse because they're very clear that they intend to impose this on German Catholics and on priests. And we are headed for a massive fight. Uh,
0: Back in 2016, Pope uh, Francis said that uh, today children, he's talking to the Polish bishops, today children, children are taught in school that everyone can choose his or her sex. Why are they teaching this? because the books are provided by the people and institutions that give you money. These forms of ideological colonization are also supported by influential councils, and this is terrible. I mean, it's pretty. this is not a guy that's open uh, to gender ideology.
1: No, no. Uh, and, and when you listen to the actual words of so many of the key figures uh, in this sonatal way, uh, for example, Gregor Podschun is the head of uh, the Federation of German Catholic Youth, uh, said that the claims of gender ideology were a scientific fact and that uh, the church's denial of this is causing people to commit suicide. Uh, he had the, the telling phrase that uh, the patriarchy must be destroyed. And that's something that's been echoed repeatedly. Uh, and, it, and it says something that uh, many of the delegates were very invisibly upset uh, because the synodal way in its final votes did not, Openly demand uh, the ordination of women to the priesthood, but instead is taking what they see as a weak and overly moderate approach to this, which for everyone else is uh, itself just alarming.
0: Yeah, this is one of the things that killed uh, liberation theology. Uh, There were some positive things that had grown up. The idea of the base communities and these smaller fellowships that went around with the, some of the leaders of liberation theology. Uh, but the base communities were destroyed because of the ideology that they ended up embracing, a clear Marxist ideology, which then, uh, when the church was forced to deal with it, uh, it just, again, you might say, suppressed liberation
1: theology. So there's one important point about that, though, yeah. that we saw that the failure of liberation uh, ideology and the theology... It it did not succeed because they didn't have enough support now we are seeing in gender ideology a massive corporate cultural movement toward it
0: yeah yeah.
1: and so that for us is very very alarming
0: Matthew great talking with you again Uh, we didn't say much about the prayer breakfast maybe we'll talk later (laughs) this week (laughs) love to (laughs) Dr. Matthew Bunsen Hey, thanks so much. Uh, good being with you. And to do this is something you know we're we're living through. It looks like it's going to be a, a, a big moment of battle in certainly in modern church history. And so uh, here we are in the middle of Lent. This is something to pray for. It's something to lay out before the Lord as we go through this period of penance you know penance. Uh, pray for the conversion of hearts among the German bishops. Coming up next hour, we talk about justification by faith and the role that grace plays in leading us to that point where we can say yes to God and we can find our sins forgiven. Steve Wood has written an outstanding little book on grace and justification. Uh, It's an outstanding look at Catholic beliefs.